This is the Decoding Obesity Podcast, where we simplify, demystify, and decode obesity, helping you lose weight and feel great. So gear up for a fascinating journey through this ever-evolving field, and let's see what we find. And please remember that the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And now, here's your host of the Decoding Obesity Podcast, Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal. Hi, friend. Welcome to this episode of Decoding Obesity. I am pleased to welcome back Dr. Angela Fitch, who was actually on our show some time ago. I had done a few episodes with her in the past. For those of you who have not gone through her episodes or those of you who have forgotten who she was, well, she's both certified in obesity medicine, internal medicine, and pediatrics. She's currently the co-director of Mass General Hospital Weight Center and the faculty at Harvard Medical School. She is currently serving as a secretary treasurer of the Obesity Medicine Association and previously served as a trustee. She was the 2015-2016 chair of the clinical management section of the Obesity Society. Dr. Fitch is the winner of 2017 Clinician of the Year Award from the Obesity Medicine Association. She enjoys seeing patients of all ages to help them reach their weight and wellness goals. She enjoys cooking, traveling, and outdoor activities with her husband and son and looks forward to exploring New England. Welcome back, Dr. Fitch. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It is so nice to have you back. And, you know, I'm seeing you after such a long time. I am sure this is going to be a very fun episode for us. And I'm actually now the president-elect of the OMA, oh, the Obesity Medicine Association. Congratulations. So I did not I know that. I need to change my title. Yes, you should. Congratulations. I did not know that. That's very exciting news. Yeah. So next year, I'll be president. So that'll be fun. Excellent. Excellent. So let's talk about, you know, management of obesity in children. You know, I thought I'll dedicate a few episodes to childhood obesity because this is something that I'm not very comfortable with because I'm not trained in pediatrics. So for me, pediatric obesity is kind of something that I've always been, you know, pushing to the side and really not paying much heed to that. But I think that it's very important to actually talk about it because, you know, we always want to nip the problems in the bud. And, you know, if we can, you know, sort of tackle these problems early on, I think this will lead to healthier adults. So that's why I thought I should dedicate some episodes to this. And that's why I have you here to talk about, you know, how we manage pediatric obesity. So let's just start talking about, you know, how does the management of obesity really differ in children compared to, say, adults? Well, that's kind of a complicated question. So <laughs> it requires a little bit of dissecting there, I think, because obviously children are not just tiny adults, right? They're different. They're growing. They're changing as far as sociologically and their social emotional development, right? So we have to also be you know, mindful of that as we try to start with, you know, healthy habits and changing habits. Because the big issue, I think, for all of us, right, is we live in a world that's obesogenic. And so to ask somebody, even our adult patients, you know, to ask them to eat healthy, right, to have a healthful nutritional pattern is not natural for the environment. So you're asking someone to live differently than the environment is engineered for. And that requires some work effort, right? To actually do something different than sort of what's presented to you. And for kids in particular, that's very hard because a lot of them don't have brain development that allows them to have that level of executive functioning to sort of say, you know, this is better for me than that. So I'm going to make this choice, right? Intentionally. 
And so there's a lot of, of differences, you know, in working with kids. And I think the biggest thing to keep in mind is that we're also just working with the entire family, right? And that's true of your adult population too. I mean, we have to work with the whole family unit, whoever your family is, meaning that might just be people that are living in your house, right? Because the people that are around us also structure our lives to a great deal. And so we have to, you know, recognize, you know, that family component, certainly even more when it comes to our pediatric treatment. Yeah. And I think you raise a very interesting point. And I just thought of a previous episode where Dr. Ettinger was on the show and he had given the example of this mismatch of the peppered moth that happened in Britain. And because of the Industrial Revolution, the soot was actually basically on the trees and everything was darker. So the birds started feeding on the lightly colored moths. And so the darker colored moths actually grew. And that's kind of what this is, right? We're in an obesogenic environment. So the environment is changing, but we have not changed per se biologically to kind of adapt to that environment. Well, yeah, I mean, we have kind of changed biologically to adapt to the environment, meaning like we're just living in our environment, right? And so to tell a to help a child understand, you know, that they should having something like carrots or broccoli or something else, you know, with their lunch, when they're not even presented that at their school lunch, for example, right? Their school lunch thinks that pizza is a vegetable right. and gives them pizza as the vegetable. I mean, you know, then that's a problem, right? When we say, well, maybe have, you know, not chocolate milk, but have white milk, but yet chocolate milk is all around them at school as a choice you know, that's challenging for them to make that decision, right? I mean, and a lot of these, a lot of our patients, I mean, they don't have that exactly. Right. You know, there's good data to show that until you get past adolescence, even, you know, some people don't develop high level executive functioning skills until even into their 20s. And some people not until even later than that. I can totally relate to that. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's hard. I mean, and so I think it also gets back to the fact that, you know, especially with pediatric obesity, in particular, you know, we want to intervene on it earlier. But it is just like with obesity with you mentioned, you know, we don't learn about it as much. You mentioned not being as comfortable right. with it. And the thing is, is that the society isn't as comfortable with it either. You know, people think have thought naturally for years that kids will control themselves, that pediatric biology will control itself. And they'll just magically grow bigger and get leaner. You know, they'll just grow into their weight, so to speak. But we've seen that that's not happening anymore. Because again, the environment is not structured for the, the child to just live into it. Right. And right. be a healthy weight, right? With 42% of the population in adulthood having obesity, and predicted 50% by the year 2030. Wow. We're talking about the natural sort of instinct is to have obesity, have excess adiposity. And that's what we're trying to change, which is even more of a challenge. Right. And, you know, I was about to ask you that I think a lot of times this is the perception that the child is out going to outgrow this, the child is in a growing age, and, you know, they need the nutrition. And at some point in time, when the growth spurts come in, they're going to outgrow this obesity. So I was going to ask you, when do you really wait or do you really wait for this? Yeah, so we're at the Mass General Weight Center. We do see that we're fortunate that we have our weight center in one place. So we have all of our patients, you know, in one sort of setting, so to speak. So we treat, so myself, you know, being internal medicine and pediatrics and obesity, I can see the whole patient's family. 
Because many people, because of the genetic association with obesity, many kids with obesity, their parents have obesity as well. And so, again, there is a natural sort of ability to see everybody in that sense. So we do see kids, you know, as young as, as four or five years old that are coming to us with significant obesity. And, you know, at that point, we're talking about, you know, we have a fair amount of kids that are greater than the 120th percentile of the 95th percentile. Wow. So, you know, and we'll talk about that maybe in a little bit, you know, how do we define, you know, obesity in kids? It's different than adults. But we're talking about is kids that sometimes have BMIs of 30 and 32 when they're six and seven years old. Oh, wow. You know, so now we're talking about an absolute BMI that meets criteria for adult obesity, you know, when they're very young. And so, again, it's more challenging of a disease when they're younger because we don't have a lot of interventions that can intervene on it. But the one thing we do have to be aware of, right, is that if we don't do some intervention of some sort, it's likely that the child will continue to have obesity and not sort of grow out of their weight. But for many of my patients, especially the younger patients that still have a growth spurt, we do focus on even just maintaining weight, right? Because if I have the 135-pound 7-year-old, if they're a 135-pound 18-year-old, they're probably fine, so to speak, right? So if we can just get them through that growth phase without gaining weight, that's another accomplishment. And so it's not always focused, I guess, the big differentiating factor sometimes for the younger kids is that their weight management is not always focused on weight loss. You know, it can be focused on weight maintenance as well. Yeah. And I think that's very important to understand as well that it's not necessarily about losing the weight, but when kids are growing, even maintaining the same weight, may be a very beneficial activity in terms of, you know, helping them get to the right BMI or the right weight as they grow older. So what modalities do you use for management of obesity in children? Well, so, you know, the AAP has a nice guideline and it's also in the Obesity Medicine Association guidelines, you know, the pediatric OMA guideline, obesity treatment guideline. There's nice progression of treatment, right? There's different stages of treatment with the first stage being lifestyle intervention, like we do for most people is to, you know, intervene at that level. But what I want to stress to your listeners is it's not always just starting at that level, right? A lot of times, you know, if the disease is severe enough, if we have a patient with severe obesity, right, we might intervene with medication at the same time that we do lifestyle. It doesn't mean you have to do lifestyle for years or even six months necessarily before you move into the next category. So many times people think... It's a stepwise approach. Yeah, that it's stepwise. And I think we need to get out of that habit of thinking of stepwise. It definitely is stepwise, meaning we should layer the treatment, right? right? The treatment should be layered, but it doesn't have to be always at the bottom that you start with that and, and go up. And that's where I think people get a little bit... Sometimes we get a little too focused on that. The only reason being is that sometimes if you're focusing on one thing at a time like that, it can go years, so to speak, you know, because people don't, maybe they miss an appointment or something happens, or you're just sort of, like, I frequently find we get into these circumstances where people are like, okay, yes, I'm going to eat more vegetables, I'm going to change my, I'm going to increase my physical activity, and they have good intentions of doing this. Most people know that these things are good for us for a health perspective, but they don't always produce weight loss. Right. Because obesity as a disease being complicated means that we don't always get weight loss from those healthful intentions. That lifestyle intervention doesn't always produce weight loss. And so we have to understand that and understand when to sort of increase the intensity of our treatment. 
And that's where a lot of times we do start with medications. And again, with our pediatric population, we have surgical intervention as well as as our most successful especially as kids get older. Right. And, you know, of course, when we talk about medications, obviously, parents would obviously be, you know, a little apprehensive about it, especially with all the bad rap that weight loss drugs have gotten in the past. So what are the drugs that are actually approved for the pediatric age group? Because I know there are certain limitations for some of the drugs that can be used. Well, and that I think is a concern for everybody, right? For obesity in general as a disease, because we're not used to obesity being treated as a disease. Most diseases today we treat with medication or surgery, right? I mean, most diseases we have, we have some sort of medication or surgery, which is why they're a disease, right? And if we didn't have those things, we would just have to live with those diseases and recognize the consequences, right? If we had no treatment for cancer, like we did back in, I don't know, you know, when was the first time we got treatment for that? (laughs) The 1800s, let's say, (laughs) you know, we had no treatments, you know, we had no treatment for, we had no antibiotics, right? So people died of pneumonia, right? you know, because we had no antibiotics. But now they don't die of pneumonia because, well, we, sometimes, but hopefully not, you know, as often. Of course, yeah. Because we have medication and we have surgery. We can put a chest tube in and take out an empyema. How many times did I see that on the pediatric ward? I mean, not not every single room, but quite a bit. Kids needed chest tubes for empyemas or and or needed surgery to get rid of their empyema after their pneumonia. That wasn't their fault that they got an empyema. That wasn't that fault they got a bunch of infection that locked in there and they needed medical intervention to get rid of it. But thankfully, we had medical intervention to get rid of it. And we were able to, you know, treat that and make that person better. And that's very similar with obesity, but we just don't always, as a society, you know, we don't always accept obesity as something as serious as an empyema. And granted, it's not as immediately life-threatening, so you don't die from obesity tomorrow, but there are longer-term consequences to it, and that's the challenge. Right. And I think that's very important to kind of understand. And this is the point that I've been hammering since I started doing my podcast, that obesity is a chronic disease. And I think everybody should understand and know that this needs to be treated as a chronic disease, really. And just like any other disease, for example, high blood pressure, diabetes, they require medications. You cannot wish these diseases away. At some point in time, sometimes people do require medications, and they are good adjunct to, you know, the lifestyle changes that people do need to make to get to their, you know, healthy weight, I would say. Not optimal, I wouldn't say ideal, I would say a healthy weight. Well, or healthier, right? Right. Then Because we know that, you know, and even just the healthful actions that we have, right, in our lives. So so following a more healthful diet than the standard American diet is, right? So you have to create that yourself, meaning, you know, consuming five to seven servings of vegetables and fruits a day. I mean, that's hard to do for myself even. And this is what I do for a living. I have to actively sort of engage myself in, in eating this way because the world isn't set up like that. And we have to teach people that, that they have to actively find ways of encouraging themselves, you know, to have these things because the other foods that are available are hyper palatable. Right. And they're very tasty. And when you're a child in particular, and again, you know, I mean, these things come naturally to you that you want to eat more of that, you know, because it tastes so good, even small babies or children, et cetera. But back to your point about medication, I mean, we do have a lot of our medications we use are what we consider off-label. Right. So we're using medications such as, for example, topiramate, which is approved for children for epilepsy, you know, for 
seizure disorder. That was its original reason for being on the earth was for seizures as anti-seizure medication. So we might use topiramate, you know, even in younger children because of that. Phentermine is officially approved down to the age of 16. And so that does, you know, give some relief at least that it's approved. We have liraglutide now that's approved down to the age of 12, as well as Orlistat, which is also approved down to the age of 12. And we use a fair amount of, I would say, formin because we do consider that to be relatively safe in pediatrics from experience, you know, of people with type 2 diabetes that are pediatric patients that are also taking metformin. But we use a fair amount of that with insulin resistance. And we do see a fair response, I feel like, in pediatrics, a little more so than adult patients. I think because the pediatric insulin resistance state hasn't been around as long, right. meaning in the pediatric body, right, you know, because right. the, the child is only seven or six or, you know, what have you. And so when, when we haven't had that obesogenic state in the biological system that long, it's more responsive, right. which is also a reason to treat it intensely sooner because the data has shown that the sooner we treat it, the better results we get long-term because the thought process being that the obesity state is not as not as ingrained right you know in the person so to speak and what do you do for say younger children say somebody is a toddler 3 years 4 years old 5 years old what do you do there because that's like a very tricky age to deal with right yeah and i think it's really more working with the parents at that age i mean it's really more of a parenting discussion because again especially in today's world when we're so busy um, it's so easy to sort of love people with food, especially foods that they want, you know, and these kids, they learn very early on. I mean, we have data on that, that children learn very early on to manipulate their parents. I mean, even, you know, <laughs> in small children, like six months old, nine months old, I mean, they learn very quickly that if they do this, then this happens. Like if I cry, and if I cry long enough, then someone will give me, you know, some ice cream. And when they learn that, you know, like Pavlov and his dogs, right? When they learn this, they do it again and again. And so you have to be, it's hard to be strong these days, so to speak, as a parent, <laughs> because there's so much competing stuff in the world, right? And especially even grandparents are notorious too, especially if they live within the household, you know, of what we call being an enabler, you know, of the whole situation. Like, you know, right. grandma gives me cookies because, and so, and that's not to say, I mean, we all should have some cookies. We all should have some ice cream. These are not sort of bad foods, right? I mean, they are treats that we all should enjoy. But when we're doing it on a daily basis or on an ongoing, you know, more routine basis, or if we have a genetic predisposition towards obesity, unfortunately, we have to be a little more attentive to those things than we do if we don't, right? And so that's where it gets pretty hard, you know, especially at those younger ages, because we don't have a lot of medication. Yeah. But we are, you know, finding more of the genetic. The exciting part, too, in obesity in general is figuring out more of these genes. Right. You know, and the genetic association of obesity. And for someone who has obesity under the age of six, it definitely, we think of more of a genetic obesity component than others, potentially. Right. It doesn't mean other people don't have, um, you know, genetics is still 70% of obesity. But these younger kids, especially if they have severe obesity when they're younger, you know, that's something that definitely we think about genetics. And we now have a medication, to your point earlier, too, that 
is targeted towards those patients with genetic contribution to their obesity for certain genes. So we're making progress, but it'll be a while. Yeah. And I mean, there's certainly some excitement about, you know, some of the new drugs that are on the horizon. I don't know if they'll be approved for pediatric obesity just yet, but I think they're fairly effective. And hopefully, you know, if we get those new drugs approved for pediatric obesity as well, I think it's going to be an exciting time for obesity medicine. Yeah, and setmelanotide, which is the drug that's approved for genetic obesity of certain genes of POMC and other types of genetic disorders, you know, it is approved down to the age of six. Right. But unfortunately, some of these medications are injections, and they're injections you have to take every day. Right. Which, you know, and also that's evolving now that we have semaglutide, which is a weekly injection. I think that, you know, once semaglutide gets approved, and that study's underway right now to be approved down to the age of 12, that'll be a huge opportunity for our patients because right now giving themselves a daily injection of loraglutide is not quite as, you know, not, is a little onerous, especially, you know, for a teenager or. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's tough for adults. I can only imagine how difficult yeah. it is for kids, right? But how do you track. But a weekly injection. A weekly but injection. A weekly is injection a is manageable. Yes, definitely. <laughs> how good the GLP-1, the oral GLP-1 analog is for pediatric population, the oral one. I'm forgetting what it's called. Ribelsis, I think? Yeah, that's semaglutide oral, right. the oral version of semaglutide, which is not approved in pediatrics. You know, one of the issues that we have with a lot of these medications, you know, oral semaglutide is not approved for obesity yet. It's approved for diabetes treatment. And so sometimes it's harder to get these types of things covered by insurance, especially if it's not the right age group, right? And especially if the person doesn't have that disease. Yeah. And so it can be quite challenging, you know, to get coverage of these types of medications. And as far as I know, they're not looking at oral semaglutide for For um, pediatrics, but I... You know, I know that they're looking at oral semaglutide for the future in obesity treatment. And so maybe they will look at that, you know, down the road. But unfortunately, pediatric patients sometimes, this area of, because there's so much stigma and bias against obesity, the drug development even is not as aggressive as it could be because there's not as much of a acceptance, so to speak, you know, of it being treated. As a disease. Well, there's one, and I don't remember the name off the top of my head because it's still investigational, right? The GLP-1 analog and GIP combination, which they were saying was going to be probably as effective as surgery, right? And so it would be very exciting to see what that would show in the studies. Yeah, and I don't know. That's um, The first one that's going to come out is terzepatide, and terzepatide is coming out soon in the next few months for diabetes treatment. So not for obesity. obesity. It's going to be another... Last time I talked to Eli Lilly, that's Eli Lilly who makes the terzepatide right now. I think it was going to be another three years potentially oh, wow. before it gets approved because this takes a long time, right? And if you don't do simultaneous pediatric studies at the same time, oh, yeah. then you're talking about getting an approval like what happened with loraglutide, right? I mean, it was on the market for 20 years right. before, you know, as Victoza before it got approved for pediatric obesity. So we did the first study of GLP-1 in pediatrics back at the University of Minnesota back in about 2005. Oh, wow. Okay. So we did the first study and we were doing this study. We were just a bunch of people sitting around a room like this and we were like, we should look at GLP-1 in pediatric obesity. And we're like, yeah, that's awesome. Let's do that, right? And so we actually, at the time, you know, we had secured 
independent funding for the study. And so it was a pilot study. So we just did like 30 kids, right? But these are kids without diabetes, but they had severe obesity. So greater than the 120th percentile of the 95th percentile. So they were those kids that would otherwise be going towards surgery as a treatment option. And they were going to get GLP-1. And originally, the first GLP-1 we had was Bieta. Bieta was dosed twice a day, two injections a day. You had to take it 30 minutes before a meal or else you would start vomiting pretty profusely. If you didn't take it, like if you took it right now and then you ate right away and you ate too fast and your GLP-1 caught up with you, so to speak, you would get sick later, right? Because of gastro, you know, the slowing of gastric emptying. So that was the Bieta was what we were going to use. And I said, I was the only MedPeds person in the group. And I said, no, we need to use liraglutide because liraglutide is so much better because it's liraglutide had just come out, okay, in the adult population for uh, diabetes treatment, right? So not for obesity, but for diabetes. I said, we should use liraglutide. And so we went to Novo Nordisk, who makes, this is, like I said, back in 2002 or three, right? We went to them and said, we didn't even want to do a study with them. We just wanted them to give us the placebo pens because we were going to buy drug with the funding that we had. I see. So we didn't even need people to agree to like, you know, like fund the study or anything like that. We just wanted the placebo pens because you have to, you know, use the placebo pen. You have the pen has to look exactly like the pen you're going to give somebody right. to give the drug, right? right? In a placebo controlled trial. So we were going to buy the drug and then get placebo pens. They wouldn't give us the placebo pens because they said at the time, again, this was 2003, we're not interested in pediatric obesity. (laughs) (laughs) So we did the study with Bieta and it was hugely successful. And the kids actually liked it. I mean, many of them did not want to come off. I mean, it was kind of sad. And they were so successful with this medication, finally having the satiety right? That they never had before. Many people, when they're on a GLP-1, they say, I never knew what it was like to feel full. And they finally knew what it was like to feel full. And now they could actually manage that a little bit better, right? And so it was heartbreaking at the end of the study, you know, to take them off because we couldn't get it for them. I mean, this was off-label. It was off-age label. It was off, like off-label for not even obesity treatment, right? Right. But here's the clincher, right? Here's the thing I want to stress in all this, is that was like 2005, okay? I mean, this was like, now it it took, you know, 10, 12 years before liraglutide was approved. You know, there was a GLP-1 agent approved for pediatric obesity. I mean, that's a long time, you know, when we already had the drug approved, right? When HIV was a disease when AIDS became a disease. And we recognized that there was maternal fetal transmission of HIV. It only took three years for the FDA to approve AZT in kids. Wow. Three years from the time we identified the disease and we had a drug treatment for adults, which was AZT, right? And it only took three years to say, this is so important that these kids don't get this, that we're going to run this through the FDA. You know, we're going to run some trials. We're going to get this going, right? That was the momentum, right? Three years from Deciding that it was, you know, an issue to getting it approved for kids. I mean, approved for adults, approved for kids. And it took 15 years to get that with <laughs> yeah, the I mean, yeah. The powers that be, they have to decide, right? <laughs> when is the right time? Well, but it's also a social thing, right? It's a perception of importance. Right. That this is a disease and it's worthy of being treated because it's not your fault. 
there's so much personal blame and parental blame, right? In the case of pediatrics, like, right. it's my fault somehow that my child, you know, that I don't take care of my child or I don't feed them well enough or I do that. And it's not the case most of the time. Right. It really needs some sort of intervention beyond just eating different and exercising more. Yeah. Going out and playing soccer is not going to be the, you know, the answer to pediatric obesity. And yet we've tried to make these lifestyle, this 5210. I mean, that's all great for prevention. And we've shown some good data that that's actually preventing and making some changes in people not having as much obesity, right? But treating obesity is completely different. Right. That is true. It's two different things, prevention and treatment. And then add to that the genetic component of obesity, where prevention may or may not work, right? So it's really complicated. But, you know, we've been talking about these percentiles, you know, the 95th percentiles. Let's talk about that. How do you really track obesity in children? Yeah, so for pediatric obesity, you know, it's really defined by the percentile, right? And so we have a growth chart, right? So we have a growth chart for BMI as well. And we recognize that BMI is not, you know, there's lots of criticism of BMI today. It's not a number that you're supposed to get to necessarily, but it's meant for sort of tracking or, you know, helping sort of guide us, right, in, in our treatment plans, right? And so pediatric obesity is defined as a BMI above the 95th percentile, okay? So it goes all the way from two years of age to adulthood, right? At some point in time, you know, that becomes then a BMI of 30, right, right. becomes defined as obesity. And so a BMI greater than the 95th percentile, or as we mentioned earlier, I mean, a BMI that is characterized as the adult BMI, right? So a BMI greater than 30 of any level is obesity, right? Even if you're five years old, but your BMI shouldn't be 30 is the point, you know, when you're five years old. So right. that's definitely above the 95th percentile. We grade it above that then at the 120th and 140th percentiles in order to classify severe obesity. So severe pediatric obesity is greater than the 120th percentile, greater than the 140th percentile is typically then where we think of definitive sort of treatment of severe obesity with surgery. So guiding, you know, our surgical decisions in particular. And so what about fat percentage, body fat percentage? Do you use that in pediatrics at all? I know that we use in adults, but do we use that in pediatrics at all? So we don't use that as much in pediatrics. You know, the, and again, we can go back a little bit and say, you know, essentially in kids, right, we still use the class one, class two, class three obesity, right? And so, you know, class one obesity is just that 95th to the 120th percentile. Class two is 120 to 140th percentile. And then class three is greater than the 140th percentile. So that's how we define, you know, surgery, indication for surgery, meaning, you know, surgery is indicated when the obesity is severe enough that that's the treatment that's warranted, right? And right. we call that class three obesity as the obesity that is the level at which surgery is definitively the most definitive treatment or the most successful treatment. We have some, the harder part is even in adults is figuring out, you know, sort of what is a normal body fat percentage, right? And then looking at that and then looking at pediatric body fat percentages are in sort of that, that research is in sort of its infancy, if you will, at what is normal, you know, and how do we define that? But I do think there's a huge opportunity for that. I'm a big fan of, of body composition. And I do find it, especially in my teenagers, 
that it's very helpful for them to understand that, that this is how much muscle mass they have. And so we can work on that and work on, you know, keeping that muscle mass and getting rid of that adiposity, right? That's really what we're trying to accomplish. So we can measure it in children and we can follow it in children and and help them. It's just, we don't have quite as clear cut of sort of goals, you know, other than what we have for adults. And we sort of, we, so we kind of extrapolate that a little bit, you know, into the adult population. Right. Dr. Fitch, you know, Obviously, managing obesity in pediatrics is a completely different ballgame compared to adults, where you know adults are definitely, I would say, have a greater chance of being in control of their nutrition than kids. But I think along with this also comes the emotional trauma, right, that, that the kids face. And I'm just wondering, I like the fact that your clinic actually has a whole family approach where, you know, you're treating everybody and you're talking to everybody. So I'm just wondering, how do you manage, how does your team manage all the emotions that come along with it and all the stress and the anxiety that comes along with, you know, management of obesity, especially in kids? It is. It's challenging. And there's a lot of feeling out there that, you know, if I, if I try to have my child eat differently than the world right, that that's going to create an eating disorder of some sort. And we know that eating disorders are not not necessarily created by by diets themselves, I mean, or by changing your dietary patterns. They're complicated psychological disorders that come from a lot of different places. They have genetic components and other types of issues, right, and beliefs around body image and things like that. So, I mean, the moral of the story is that we all should work on healthful lifestyles, right? Which is this five to seven servings of vegetables and fruits a day and being physically active, you know, for 30 to 60 minutes or 60 minutes or more for the kids, you know, every day. And we should get back to that as a health goal and not something that we directly relate to a number on a scale and recognize that number on the scale is something that we're trying to change by other means, right? By this, just like we would other diseases. And so we do really work closely, you know, we have a psychology team that also works with patients because it's challenging for even adults, right? Um, Emotionally and psychologically and the stigma around obesity and the fact that I'm larger and people making fun of me. We have a lot of kids getting bullied, you know, about various things, you know, in school, but especially their weight. And it really is a challenge because even with, you know, non-patient first language in our world, right? It just reinforces all that, all that stigma as well. I mean, I, can't tell you how many times I read an article, you know, even in our medical journals, yes. you know, that is this obese child, you know, no, it's not an obese child. It's a child with obesity. Right. I mean, the fact that we still use this terminology, you know, these obese children, even in like the Boston Globe and the New York Times, you know, people write an article, a very well-intended article. They're not trying to be stigmatizing, but they're like, the children are obese, you know, because of COVID, you know, I mean, pandemic weight gain is making our children obese. No, our children have obesity because of several factors, right, that are playing a role and we need to help them. You know, it's not their fault. Um, So we, we do a lot of that talking about how, you know, it's not your fault. And I say that a lot because there's usually a lot of times that especially the teenage kids and kids into their preteen years will cry a lot in the office because finally, you know, someone is talking to them about it. And they, you know, when I say, do you feel hungry all the time? Do you feel like you want to eat all the time? And they're like, yes, I feel hungry all the time. And that's a hard, challenging thing to try to express, you know? 
And I think even if they express, I think it's something that if someone's not suffering from it, it's very hard to comprehend that if somebody's going to be hungry all the time, it's really very hard for, for somebody not suffering from it to fathom, like, what would that feel like? And I think that's why it, it's even more difficult. And even though, you know, you know, the parents or family members or even the friends may be well-intentioned, it's something that they may not comprehend. And especially, you know, even the kids don't comprehend it sometimes and the adults, right? Until they are given something like a medication, like GLP-1. And now suddenly, like I said, that's frequently what they say is that they're like, I never knew what it was like to feel full. And that's fascinating to hear from somebody who, again, if you don't experience that yourself, if you're like, really? Like, hmm. (laughs) You know, last time I ate, I feel full or, you know, I mean, it's really, it's such a different sensation that we all get differently for various reasons, some of which from our stomach, potentially some of which from our brain, you know, I mean, it's just really complicated. You know, it's interesting because kids with pediatric obesity, if they've not had the sensation of fullness, they wouldn't have had it all their life. So they don't really know what what feeling full feels like or means, right? And so to have a new sensation, it's like somebody who's deaf and gets, you know, some implant put in and hears for the first time. It's kind of like that. Right. And so to ask them to manage that without them even knowing how to, you know, meaning the sort of staged approach of treatment that we all sort of recommend lifestyle first. I mean, to have somebody even be able to do that without something else helping them to do it, surgery and or medication, again, especially if they're in that class you know, class two with a comorbidity or class three obesity without a comorbidity or even class one, you know, obesity as well, right? right? I mean, we, you know, we treat class one obesity typically with medications, you know, with medication management, just like we treat, you know, we wouldn't expect somebody with blockages in their heart from heart disease, you know, to just, you know, eat better and exercise more for that to go away. You know, we, today we have angioplasty, we have, you know, we have to think about it the same way. And we have to offer people effective treatment that can really make a difference. And so that's what I would say is my biggest sort of, you know, wish I what I wish everybody understood more, right, or accepted more, is that this requires more of a a medical intervention to it, more so than than what we, I think, a lot of times appreciate. And that's not to say that anybody wants to go on medication. Nobody wants any kind of medication. Nobody wants a disease in the first place. Right. But if there's effective treatment for it that we can offer you and you can tolerate that treatment, you know, then then why not? Absolutely. Why not try that treatment and see what comes out of it? Then we we see what happens, right? And a lot of times we work on these things simultaneously, that until we can get that person, that sensation of fullness or that satiety, how are we going to change? You know, many times people will say to me, well, we have to, you know, change their diet first because if they, if they don't change their diet, they shouldn't be taking a medicine. Right. Well, that doesn't make any sense, <laughs> exactly. right? I mean, that's like making them pay for something. You know, it's almost like, again, it's, it's still back to that blame. Right. Right, right, right. Well, Dr. Fiz, this has certainly been an interesting discussion. What would be your parting thoughts for our listeners? Oh, my goodness. So many parting thoughts. <laughs> like I said, I think the biggest thing is to recognize that the pediatric obesity is a disease, you know, that is worthy of treatment and that, you know, that it's not just about eating differently and exercising more. That's part of the equation for sure. And we all have to sort of own up to that, so to speak, because our environment isn't engineered that way. So we have to somehow find a way to live outside of that environment and engineer our own environment that's going to be successful. 
And so, you know, in doing so, though, you know, really sort of working the best we can at those healthful interventions and recognizing, though, that for the most part, a lot of times that doesn't, you know, treat and or cure the disease that we have in front of us. And so we have to employ these other interventions we have in order to be successful. And that's the biggest thing, you know, and there's no fault in that or no blame in that or no, no feeling of inadequacy, right? Because so many people feel like they're inadequate if they can't just fix it themselves. And that's what we have to, you know, get away from, especially for our kids. Yeah, that's true. That's very well said. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your wealth of knowledge on this podcast. And thank you everyone for tuning in. I'll see you all next time. You've been listening to the Decoding Obesity Podcast. Please remember, the information in this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the host and his guests and do not constitute medical advice. Views and opinions on this show do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com for show notes and more info. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.